Lord. We return to our study of Luke 12. So if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Luke 12, where we have been just following the discourse of the Lord Jesus, who has been challenging us greatly, especially on the matter of how attached we are to this life. This, is, this has been a concern of the Lord. He doesn't want us grasping things here. He doesn't want us sinning to get something from this life or sinning to hold on to something from this life. Nor does he want us to take refuge in what we have here for in the abundance of things, no man's life consists. We've heard this from the Lord again and again. And so we've been studying the problem of worry and anxiety and we've looked at what Jesus says is the sin behind it. But here is the question. Does the Bible give an ultimate cure? We know I've identified worry and anxiety as unbelief and as worldliness, but does the scripture give an ultimate cure for the sin of anxiety or being attached to things in this life and worrying about what you're not going to have or going to have in this temporal world? Is there an ultimate cure given in scripture for the sin of worry? Is there a way to live that really lays an ax at the root of this thing and severs it ultimately from its grip on our lives? Well, the good news is that there is an answer to this in the Bible, and it is a way of life for the believer that becomes literally so powerful that the cares and burdens of life are put into proper perspective, and moment by moment, the Christian lives different if this solution to the problem is brought into your life. And so on the same day when Jesus was dealing with the sins of materialism and being attached to this life and worry and all the sin that goes with it, he turned the corner in his teaching and he gave the ultimate cure for anxiety. And it is simply this. Jesus says here it is to live every day in a state of high readiness for his return at any moment. I'll say it again, the cure for being attached to this life and worrying about this life, the ultimate cure is to live every day in a state of high readiness for his return at any moment. That's where Jesus goes in this sermon. In fact, you remember in verse 31, he just said, seek first the kingdom and everything else we need will be added to our lives by God in exactly the way and the timing that God chooses for our greatest good. So seeking the kingdom then is the ultimate cure for the sin of anxiety and worry, and to seek the kingdom is equal to this issue, living in a state of high readiness for the coming of Christ. That is the ultimate cure. You want to cure your sinful fears, your sinful worrying about daily burdens, then grab a hold of this ultimate cure. Live in a constant state of alert and excited readiness for the return of your master, for the return of your savior. Now you know why we worry and are so anxious. You automatically know that. If that's the cure, we now have diagnosed the problem. Many Christians don't live a single moment as if Jesus is coming back, let alone soon. Some don't even believe he's coming back at all, it seems. That he could arrive suddenly and without warning doesn't seem to register in those many who profess Christ. Despite the fact that across the 260 chapters of the New Testament, the second coming is spoken of 318 times to be exact, there's only three books where it doesn't appear. 
It doesn't appear in Galatians, the letter to the Galatian churches, because Paul was going after a false gospel and he jumped right into it without even a moment's encouragement in that letter. And then the two little letters that John wrote when he wrote his three epistles, second and third John do not mention the second coming. Every other New Testament book, over 300 times total, speaks of this great truth, this wonderful reality we await. But despite that fact, many believers live as though we're not really sure he's truly coming back. And if he is, it likely won't be soon. And so you know that materialism gets a hold of the human heart. Greed and worry and anxiety fill the hearts of so many Christians because they've lost their heart for a readiness. They've begun to focus on having their best thing here and now because it's just taking so long for God's plan of redemption to finish for the kingdom to arrive. Sometimes you'll talk to young people and you'll say, you know, don't you want Jesus to come back? Yes. And, and then they'll say, but not before I get married. <laughs> I'm like, well, marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a grace of life. It's a wonderful thing. If the Lord waits, then that is the future for most. But if he comes back before you're married, know this, marriage wouldn't have done anything for you. It would have done nothing for you. You know how you know? Because he came back before you got married. If it had been something that would do, do something for you to his honor and glory, he would have allowed it. Besides, when you meet Christ, the scriptures say that nothing has entered into our imagination that could ever compare with all that he's got prepared for those who love him. Didn't we just recently study chapter 12 in the early verses and verse 8 said there that we are not to be ashamed of him or else when the angels are there with him, he will be ashamed of us? What, what is that speaking of? When is that supposed to happen? Mark's gospel in the parallel passage says it happens when he comes. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. It's gonna happen. In the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel, verse 26 and 27, it says this, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. It's going to happen. And when Jesus was in that intimate setting, just less than 12 hours before his death in the upper room, he said, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that... You're always where I am. Don't let your heart be troubled by my absence. The way that's expressed in the New Testament epistles is that our citizenship isn't here, Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. Is that true of you? That you eagerly await the Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Paul says, because by his power, the power that enables him to bring everything under control, the power that created the universe, that puts the universe under his sovereign power, that power is that which will transform us, these lowly bodies, into glorious bodies. Look, I, I long for that. I want this lowly body with all of its old appetites and all of its struggles and all of its infirmities and limitations. I want that. I want Christ to come back because I know he's going to exert that power on me and he's going to give me a perfected in holiness, glorified state, a body fashioned to be with him righteously. I want that. 
And don't you want to see sin finally dealt with? Ultimately, I mean, it's already that Christ is the victor. Satan is already a defeated foe, but he's not yet bound and evil is not yet done so that glory reigns on the globe. I long for that. The silencing of all of God's enemies, I long for that. And don't you long for Satan to be dealt with? Don't you long for evil to be dealt with, rebellion against the creator of the universe to be dealt with? I do. My citizenship isn't here. Sometimes we get in this weakened state. We get comfortable, we get demanding, we get entitled, we get selfish, and if, if in our culture or in our life, two other ingredients are added, we're in serious trouble because these were the same two problems Israel had all through their history, time and prosperity. Enough time and enough prosperity and men will do evil in the sight of the Lord, so says the history of Israel and every era of humanity. That is our problem. And so what's the cure? The second coming. Longing for it, loving it, reading about it, thinking about it, singing about it treasuring it in our hearts, humbling ourselves under its truth by faith, knowing what the Bible teaches about it, and encouraging one another with these things, Paul told the Thessalonians. He said, look, you're a new church, but I taught you to eagerly wait for the Lord, and they were. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. We'll meet the Lord in the air and we'll thus forever be with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Look, sometimes we lose sight of the glories of Christ's coming and begin to become anxious because we're not encouraging one another with these words. When is the last time you spoke of the second coming to your circle of friends? This is a problem. Jesus says this is a huge problem. It's what leads to the greed and materialism and anxiety and worry that he's been talking about. They're connected. This is the conversation that Jesus was having and this is where he took us. This is where he directed the disciples. If you've been with us in our Sunday night study of the book of Revelation, you, you recall these hopeful and yet heart-stopping words in chapter 1, 7 and 8. Look, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Can you imagine? I mean, we thought the technology and the internet was, was really for us. Oh, no, God is preparing our ability to see everything that happens on the globe. You want a video that's going to go viral? Every eye will see Christ coming. Every eye. And even those who pierced him, everyone who's hated him, everyone who's jumped on the bandwagon through the centuries after he was crucified, everyone who was there when they crucified him, everyone before who hated the Messiah, they will all mourn for him, especially Israel. They will mourn for him whom they pierced and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Yeah, they'll mourn because some who are in unbelief will realize Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah whom they killed and they haven't believed in him and generations haven't believed in him. That will produce grief upon grief. And every enemy of God will mourn because instantly when they see him, they'll realize, oh, they were wrong in all their railings. They were wrong in all their false religion. They were dead wrong in all of their rebellions. 
and Christ and his word were established and right and true. Yeah, they'll mourn. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know why we get wrapped up in worry? Because we look at the world and we're, we're, we're interacting horizontally with it and we get all fearful that evil is going to win and we get all fearful that we've got to grab on to what we need here and what we need to grasp and hold on to and we sin to get it and sin to keep it. That's our problem. And Jesus comes along and says, you want to cure that? And you need to be in a state of high readiness. Live every day like you truly believe that Jesus is coming soon at any moment, in fact, and he'll come ready to honor and reward those who are serving him in that state of readiness. He will come to honor those who are watching, those who are faithful, those who are always abounding in what matters to Christ. He will honor those who are striving to live by faith moment by moment, always longing to see him face to face. And let me tell you, beloved, if you think that those things are just words on a page, you are already in serious trouble. You're already way too attached to this life. You think that getting a little bit of a taste of fulfillment here is all that you're going to have and then in the end, all that will sort of pan out on its own. And maybe you'll slip through the cracks when Christ comes and he won't really see that, that you just sort of squandered everything that he gave. Oh no. If you're sitting here this morning or if you sit here on a regular basis in this church, the question has to be asked, am I anxious and worrying because I am squandering what God has given me and not really concerned that he's gonna come and wants to catch me in a state of readiness? When Christ returns, returns, he's going to be looking for those whose conversation and whose home life and whose personal life and whose interaction with friends reflect a love for his return, knowing that it could happen at any moment. Follow along as I read verse 35 and following. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. So you too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give him their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And truly I say to you that he'll put him in charge of all his possessions but if that slave says in his heart, my master will be long time in coming and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, well, the master of that slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him at an hour he doesn't know and he'll cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and didn't get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. And the one who did not know his will and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, he'll receive but a few from everyone who's been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Let's stop right there. 
Jesus says we're to be ready at any moment. We're to live in a state of perpetual readiness for his return. And that means some things, and I want to talk about that for the remainder of our time. We'll only get through verse 40, and then we'll cover the second half next time. What does it mean to live in this state of readiness? Well, Jesus begins here with the command, be dressed in readiness, and so let's just call this an intense focus. You're to be intensely focused, or we might say disciplined. The, the verb here, be dressed in readiness, literally could, could um, be translated, let everything be girded up into the belt. In, in ancient times, they wore the tunic, you know, and then they put the sash around them. It's like when Paul was in prison and he's writing it to the Ephesians and he looks at a soldier and he sees that same thing. He sees the tunic pulled up around the legs and tucked into the sash where the weapons were tucked in. Everything was tied up by that belt. And so the imagery here is preparation for an activity and so that you're fastened and all tightened up so that you can handle the task with swiftness and with efficiency and with precision and skill. So Jesus says here, I want you to be in a state of precise skill. I want you to be in a state where you're tightened up and ready for anything. Live in light of eternity because if Christ is going to come, and he will, and if he comes at any moment when you, you may not know or expect it, I want you to, to have all of the loose ends of your life pulled in and tightened up. I want a streamlined usefulness. So you're going to have to focus. You're going to have to intensify your focus on eternal things and get your focus off this life. Live in this world. Use the resources of this world, but they cannot become the consuming focus of the believer. It's interesting that we were singing in that hymn, that line, let goods and kindred go. You know, I, I was singing that line thinking, let kindred go? I mean, people today who name the name of Christ, sometimes are in anxiety and worry rather than focusing on the coming of Christ because they're not willing to pledge all that they have in this life to Christ for his honor and his glory. They're not willing to pledge their goods and their material gain or their jobs or their children or their families to heaven for Christ. They're not. And yet, what does Jesus say? If you want to truly be my disciple, then your love for me compared to your love for your human relationships and family, it should look like the opposite. Luke 14 says that it should look like the opposite. Luke 9 says in the parallel of Matthew that it should look like hatred. It's so opposite. Your love for Christ is so beyond that every other relationship looks like a 180. That is how we're to live we're to intensify our focus on getting rid of extras we don't need that can cloud our heart, cloud our conscience, and cloud our minds. Now, you know this truth from other New Testament passages, but let's just look at one, Hebrews 12. Let's look at Hebrews 12. This is such a great charge from the writer of Hebrews. We've just been, if, if you read Hebrews straight through, then chapter 11 is all about great acts of faith that produce humble obedience and God uses people in amazing ways. And he's just listed them out there in chapter 11. That's, that's the great cloud of martyrs or witnesses or testifiers. So Hebrews 12, verse one, therefore, since we have so great of a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Here it is. Let us also lay aside every weight or excess or extra encumbrance is in the NAS translation. It's kind of a fancy word. It just means the excess, the encumbrance, the thing that would drag you down in a race. An unstreamlined life for spiritual things. A life with baggage on it that drags you down in the race and makes you more exhausted than you should be and you don't tap into the Spirit's power. You're all about human resources and all about comforts here. You're to get rid of those things, lay them aside because they're weighing you down in the race. And he says, look, I want you to also add the removal of sin which easily entangles you and I want you to run with endurance the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Christ. There it is. Lay aside everything in your life that, that causes you to be dragged backward or to stagnate. To live in a state of readiness is to take all of our responsibilities here and now and make sure they never become all-consuming priorities above the coming of Christ. Lord, what do you want me to do for your coming? What do you want me to do in the church that will bring glory to your name then? What do you want me to do that will advance your kingdom? What What do you want me to do in my life with resources and time and opportunities? Am I using them? Have I done what I'm supposed to do? Am I putting my hand to the plow? Or or is it that I've become comfortable, entitled, selfish, self-absorbed? I've got my play things. I've got my work things. I've got my family things. And those are the things that consume me. And that's why I worry. And that's why I grab greedily all the things I can get for myself. Because I'm beginning to believe that's all there is. And Jesus says, no, no, the cure for that is to be intensely focused in readiness, useful to God in all of the things that he gives you to do. How do you do that? You get rid of anything that would drag you down. You gotta do some inventory. What drags me down in my responsibilities in the advancement of all that's about the gospel and all that's about Christ? I'm not talking about being a full-time missionary or full-time in the service of the church. I'm talking about at your job and in your family and among your lost friends and family and in your hobbies and all that God gives us to do, all that aligns underneath this ultimate seeking first of the kingdom. Lord, how am I using the resources you strengthened me to, to earn at my job? How am I using it for your kingdom? How? How am I honoring you with the abilities you've given me? Or is it that I become so attached to the trophies I earn and the sense of achievement I get that I am taking, I'm trying to steal your honor and I'm attached to this and that promotion I didn't get so I'm all anxious and worrying about that. You see what happens when you don't think about the second coming of Christ which is our ultimate reward, our ultimate concern? Stop seeking things on this earth, but seek to promote the things that are above where Christ is. Why does Paul say that? Because if you start grabbing hold of things here, you're going to not want to let go of it and you'll sin to hold on to it and you will not get rid of excess things that drag us down in the race. You're to slot all of your busyness underneath the ultimate priority of being spiritually ready when Christ comes. I want to be doing his work. Then he says you're to prepare for that. You're not just to be using that which he's given you. 
and, and have no excess baggage dragging you down, but you're to prepare. Notice he says, I don't want you to keep your lamps burning. And this is imagery uh, about preparing ahead of time for enough oil for the lamp. You remember the parable of the 10 virgins, Matthew 25. Jesus makes a warning in there. You got some wise bridesmaids, bridesmaids they keep some oil because they don't know when, when the master of the house is going to come back and say the invitation to the wedding, everything's prepared, come on. They, they don't know, but so they, they prepare for whatever, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's a year from now. They store up and prepare enough so that when he comes, they're ready for the invitation. What did the other virgins do, the foolish women? They squandered the preparation time. They used it on themselves. They relaxed. They kicked back. They weren't concerned. It was like, oh, he hadn't come in a long time. I, I better use this for myself. And then he came, and Jesus warns that their lamps had been extinguished and they were not invited, ultimately. They were unprepared. They didn't wait in anticipation as if that was the greatest goal. They squandered what they had on themselves. They didn't use it to keep alert and prepared for the anticipated celebration. And ultimately, they were shut out. It's a warning about being spiritually prepared for the coming of Christ. It speaks of having a heart and life that are prepared. It warns of squandering your spiritual opportunities or your spiritual usefulness or your spiritual resources. You think only of today? You think only of the comforts of this life? Then what God has given you, spiritual gifts, financial resources, talents, time, health, strength, intellect, you're going to take all of that ability and you're going to use it on yourself and you're going to worry that it's not giving you all that you want to accomplish with it or you're going to greedily step on other people to become something with it. You're going to do all of that and scrape and scrimp and fight your way to the top of nothing. And in the end, when Jesus comes, you're not going to be, you're not going to be invited Say, can that happen to true believers? Well, we'll see next week what happens to a believer that's unfaithful and not ready. No, they're not sent out into judgment, but there's chastening, severe chastening. You even see that when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, hey, you're going to meet the Lord, and the Lord is going to test your works by the fire of his glory, and it's going to demonstrate that you took some resources from him, and you used them for yourself, on yourself, accomplished nothing of eternal value and you're gonna suffer loss. I can always tell when somebody is doing that because they never talk about the second coming. They never act like the second coming is the greatest thing that, that's in their life, like that's the greatest thing they wanna talk about, like, like meeting the Lord and longing for him is it, it could come at any moment and so I'm ready, Lord, I'm ready at home, I'm ready at work, I'm ready. I, they, they, they never talk about it, they never promote it. It's like. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is where he's at. That's not where I am. Yet Colossians says, I'm hidden with him. My life is hidden with his. That's where I am. This life here and now is gospel opportunity. That's all. I enjoy the common graces of God in a job, in friends, in activities, in entertainments. But those things have to slot underneath this grand longing to meet the Lord face to face and worship him personally right in his presence. You're to be fully prepared for that. How are you using your gifts? How are you using the resources God has given you? 
So intensely focused, fully prepared. Third, high, highly alert. Look, look at this, verse 36. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes. Now this is interesting because the wedding imagery is, is vivid because it has two angles to it. First of all, let's just think about ancient weddings. They didn't have a beginning or an end that were set or that anybody knew. If you were invited guest to an ancient wedding, basically you didn't know when it was gonna begin or when it was gonna end. They may have had some common ways it was practiced, but ultimately the parents had the, the authority to say the celebration begins, but they waited until all the preparations in their family had been made. All the invited guests, they never knew. You know why they never knew? Because it was great honor and respect and love to prepare in anticipation, even though you didn't know, especially because you didn't know. I mean, we, don't, we don't do things like that to this, to, today. You know, we have other ways that we convey honor and love and respect at a wedding and its formality. But today, it's got to be on time, and we're irritated if it doesn't start, and then when it's over, I mean, if it goes too long at the reception, what do people do? Oh, I just, I have other things to do, you know. You were just at somebody's lifelong celebration, the most difficult decision of their life, and they just made it and celebrated. You want to leave in two hours? What is wrong with you? <laughs> but this is our culture, and so we have to find other ways to convey dignity and respect and honor. So we do it with a gift and money and we dress up and all the wonderful pomp and circumstance. But in ancient times, the honor and the respect came from a guest who was invited but didn't know the time. And when the door was knocked on, finally, and the family was saying, it starts tomorrow, you're just like, the relief valve was just open. <laughs> it's a floodgate. Yes, we've been waiting. We've been anticipating. So that's the one angle of a, of a wedding. The other angle is that the master of some of the homes went to the celebration, and since you don't know when it's going to end, they don't know in the house when he's coming back. And so it was like, oh, the master's gone. What are we going to do, you know? Cat's away, what? The mice play. And so Jesus uses that analogy to talk about waiting for your master, being on high alert. It spoke of your priorities. It spoke of your love and care. It spoke of setting aside other things of importance for that which was ultimately important. And so when the Lord arrives, which could happen any day, he says, when he arrives, he finds that, that he opens up a relief valve on you because you've had this anticipation building. You can't wait to see the Lord. You long to see the Lord. You long to talk to the Lord. You want to talk to him about the issues. You want to, you want to say to him, I'm so sorry I didn't honor you in a better way. I'm so sorry I wasn't the servant that I should have been. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I've thanked you many, many times in prayer. I know you heard me by your spirit, but I get to see you face to face. And now I know you as you know me, and I want to talk to you. And I want to embrace you and I want to do like the woman in Luke 7 and kiss your feet because they brought good news to me. You know, some Christians live like that so constantly you wonder if they are walking on the earth at all. You think, man, that person, all they want to do is meet Jesus. All they want to do is talk about Christ and about his coming. 
Look, I'm not talking about quit your job and go live like a hermit in some hillside and look at the sky and wait for his coming. The next section of this passage refutes that and says we have a stewardship, a big stewardship until Christ comes. But until then, if he arrives, is he going to find you on high alert? Or is he going to find you sitting in your spiritual recliner saying, oh, you're, you're here? Oh, okay. Let me get, get a few things together. Jesus says, no, you're to be like those who are waiting for their master. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. That's, that's what he wants. He wants to find you on the alert. Alert for what? Alert for him. Alert for the use of his resources, the way that you should have been using them in anticipation of the wedding celebration in anticipation of his return to the house. So when he knocks, your hand was on the door. And then Jesus does something to motivate his people that is absolutely staggering, beloved. He says that when he arrives, if he finds you in that state of excited anticipation to meet him, he is going to not ask another set of servants to serve us. He is not going to ask us to serve him. He, as our fellow heir, having purchased everything and given it to us, is going to sit at us at his table, and he is going to honor us. Don't believe me? Look at what he says. Verse 37, truly I say to you, right in the middle of the verse, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. What? I want to honor Christ. I want to bow to him. But he is saying here, you're going to do that. He's king of kings and lord of lords. But when he finds his servant in a state of excited readiness, using resources for the kingdom, thinking about the kingdom, not worrying in anxiousness about whether or not I have this or that here or don't have it, when he comes and finds me in a state of readiness, he is going to sit me down with him and his people at the table, and he is going to bring honor to his people who were found in a state of readiness. This is unfathomable. I mean, it, I imagine that we will be a bit like Peter in the upper room in John 13 when Jesus took the basin and the towel and wanted to wash his feet, and Peter's saying, no, I want to wash your feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well, then give me a bath, Lord. <laughs> in a similar imagery, here is the second coming of Christ. And he finds people in a state of excited anticipation. They have stockpiled resources to use for his kingdom. They have spent them on souls. They have discipled and edified and proclaimed and given his name. They have gone to the max, not for this life, but they've brought all the entertainments and common graces of this life and put them way underneath that ultimate priority. They set their heart on things above, not on things of the earth. And they find when he gets there and knocks on the door, at the time he comes, they are ready. The relief valve is opened and the floodgates open. Lord, yes, finally you're here. I love it. I've been waiting by the door. In my heart of hearts, that's what I wish for most. He says, when I find someone like that, I'm going to sit you down at the table and I'm going to show the honor and the rightness of that by serving my people. 
I can't imagine us being anything but just crushed in tears of joy and humility. Listen to J.C. Ryle, his comments on this. Jesus takes the human imagery of a great Lord's returning to his palace and his slaves receiving him back in a state at night and gives it a turn that is unheard of among earthly lords and grandees. He does the same in other parables. This Lord doesn't seek his own ease or retire for the night. He changes his slaves into lords and he makes as grand a feast for them as was the one from which he came. And he's reclined and dined, wonder of wonders. He doesn't sit down with them. He doesn't order other slaves to serve them, but makes himself their slave and ministers to them. End quote. This is grace for the watchful. It's what the Lord wants. You say, but how long, pastor, is this going to go on? Notice that he's going to give grace to the watchful and grace to the enduring. Notice what he says, verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, he finds them like this. So blessed are those slaves. No matter how long you have to wait, I, sure, I get it. Second Peter 3, the world says over and over again, you Christians, all you ever talk about is Jesus coming back. One of the plagues of my, the way my mind works is I can remember just about every song I ever listened to, which is a problem, beloved. And I don't forget lyrics, sadly, and a lot of that stuff was in my pagan days. And there's one particular pagan artist, but there's a line in one of his songs that I cannot get out of my mind when I study this kind of a passage. And that pagan artist said in there, and all this talk of Jesus coming back to see us, he couldn't fool us. Really? That's like another artist who said, yeah, when Jesus is dead and gone, I'll still be alive. Well, he's dead. Jesus is alive. The world is going to say, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they always have. You Christians are so blind. Listen, if that is a notion in your heart and you name the name of Christ, you have to do some serious confessing before the Lord. We're not to believe like the world. We're to have grace for endurance. When the Lord comes back, he finds us in any particular time period. The second watch was like nine o'clock to midnight. The third watch was midnight to three in the morning. Doesn't matter when he comes up, you're up. Doesn't matter when he comes back, you're on the job. You're in the ministry. You're doing things. You're praying. You're seeking opportunity to advance the kingdom. That's your energy. That's your lifeblood. You endure. You don't care how long it takes because he could come back any moment. So you're ready if he comes tonight if he comes in the next hour, are you ready whether he puts another 10,000 years of redemptive history in place? For you, your hand is on the door. You're on high alert. And then he says, not only are you to be intensely focused, fully prepared, highly alert, but just as we close, lastly, carefully guarded. Carefully guarded. I love this. Verse 39, but be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken to, into. Well, there's a, real, there's a reality we understand. Yeah, if the head of the household knows some thief's got plans and designs on his house, he sets traps, he's ready. He's alert, he's guarded. 
He doesn't let an enemy in to steal what is about to happen, take away his celebration, take away the reward and the joy for having waited in a guarded and alert state. No, Jesus just gives this imagery to say, look, the thief can come in and rob the place if the master is unaware. Enemies can come in. Or even the Lord himself can come with a sudden, unexpected arrival and you're not ready. And so he just uses a simple analogy. If a master knew the thief was going to come, he'd been ready. He'd have been carefully guarded. If the master had known. So Jesus is essentially saying here, beloved, there's a spiritual readiness that deals with having attachments to this life. It takes your grip off of this life. It dispels greed. It begins to eradicate your attachments here. You begin to understand eternal verities much clearer and much deeper. You start to see this world for what it is. You live in this world. You enjoy the things of this world, so long as they're not overtly evil. And then you align all of that under the ultimate priority of the coming of Christ so that you don't get attached to them. And so now you can deal with anxiety and worry with the ultimate cure, which is to know Christ, to know what he promised, to know that he's coming back, to know what it's going to be like so far as the scriptures speak of it, to know also that there's a part of it you can't even imagine, so says the Bible, to know that it's real, it's true, it's certain, it will happen, and when he comes, it will be terrifyingly frightening for the unready and unrepentant. And it will be shocking and glorious and rewarding for those who are ready what does it mean to be intensely focused? Set not your mind on things, above, uh, on things of the earth, but set it on things above. Promote what's, promote what's all about sanctification and all about glorification, all about the honor of the Lord. Promote that in your life, your conversation, your life, your energies, your resources. Make that your end goal. Intensify your focus on those things. And fully prepare. Give your life as a living sacrifice, Romans 12 says. Because of these mercies of God, offer your life as a living sacrifice. Lord, what, you want, what do you want me to do? I'm going to make a sacrifice over here for the kingdom, for your coming, to be ready when you arrive and give you honor and glory. I'm in. To be highly alert, what does that mean? Hebrews 9.28, to eagerly wait. He loves it when his people eagerly long for his coming. Listen, when's the last time you talked about it? When's the last time you actually got excited about his coming? When's the last time you were bored with it and you suddenly realized you were bored with it? Or when's the last time it was just tedious to think about? Or when was the last time you thought, man, if he comes now, I'm not going to be able to do all the things I want to do? <laughs> How sad. The Lord himself says in the Gospels, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a sad question for the Lord to ask. He should find Believing people so ready, so longing for his return. When he comes, we will see him as he is. We will be like him. And we're to carefully guard that, right? Lay aside every weight and excess and the sin which so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who perfects our faith. Are your eyes fixed on Christ? Is your heart fixed on Christ? Your life fixed on Christ? Listen, anytime there's anxiety and worry, you're sinning to get something, sinning to keep something, sinning to hold on to something, anytime Christ as a priority ultimately goes below all those other things that you enjoy in this life, you have, you've diminished in your readiness You've attached yourself to this life and you, you've 
got to confess and forsake that. No wonder you worry and are full of anxiety. The ultimate cure is the sudden return of Christ, the unexpected return of Christ. And that's where he goes next, and that'll be for next time. Let's bow. Lord, it is true that you are coming, and it is true that no man knows the day or the hour. It is so wonderful that you told us that because that teaches us to be sober-minded and to be excited about your return and long to see you and to study it. If you gave us over well over 300 expressions of it in your written revelation just in the New Testament. We ought to know these texts. We ought to study them. We ought to enrich our minds and hearts with them. And we wouldn't be attached to things here the way that we are. Lord, help us to be intensely trimmed and disciplined and focused in our life using spiritual resources for your glory. Help us to fix our minds on the right things, to be fully prepared and highly alert and carefully guarded. May we not be casual, entitled, self-absorbed. May we not sin to get something in this life or sin to hold on to it. To confess the sin of worry, oh God, is to confess that we haven't thought enough about your coming. We haven't longed for it. It's not to open a syllabus and study it. It's to long for your return, that we might know you, meet you, and see you in all your glory, the way that you see us through and through. And we will know you as, as we are known. Lord, we want to be a church that longs for that. We want unbelievers to see that we long to see you and your return. We're not... We're not living for this life. We're citizens of heaven. Transform our hearts and our minds in these things and break us in our entitlement, our pride, our comforts, our casualness. Strip us of our hold on these things. And may we long to see you as your people ought to long to see you. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.